left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. The property had sold about six years before I bought it for four and a half million dollars. And the owner got put in jail for slum violations at the property. So he, he sold it for $4 million. That owner also went to jail. So then it sold it to the guy that I bought it from. He ended up buying it for, I believe it was $2 million. And then he got put in jail. Now they were like marketing this property for sale. And literally the owner was in jail. And so they were offering to sell it for $850,000. And I'll tell you, before I bought it, I developed a relationships with some of the city inspectors. And I generally taken on some, some much smaller buildings and turned them around with some success. So I knew some of the inspectors and they told me, do not buy this building. We're gonna end up adversarial. You've done a good job on these much smaller properties. This is gonna be a problem for you. And of course I did not listen. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as 100 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to have George Newberry with me. He is the CEO and chairman of AHP Servicing and American Homeowner Preservation. And they both crowdfund the purchase of non-performing mortgages from banks at big discounts. Then they share the discounts with struggling homeowners. He's founder and CEO of Debt Cleanse Group Legal Services, a nationwide legal plan to help consumers and small businesses get out of debt. He's got a great backstory as well. So George, welcome to the Past Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks, Jim. Uh, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think I mentioned this when we were talking, but how I'd like to start is to kind of find your journey and, and hear from you where, where you got, how you got to where you are. And I know you have this great book called Burn Zones. I've read it and it kind of tells your story. So I'd like to start there. If you can kind of tell us about the rise and then the, the fall and then the rise again. Yeah, sure. So I was a paper boy when I was seven, you know, got my first job when I was 13 and uh, started a record company out of my parents' garage when I was 16. And it put out about seven releases of early uh, Southern California punk bands. And uh, then I like music. So I thought I wasn't a musician. So I wanted to, how do I make a business out of it? So I started the record company. And in 1984, we had the Olympics in, uh, in California. I somehow became inspired to become a bike racer. I was a bike racer 
and it got to the Olympic trials four years later in 88. So raced at the highest levels in our country. And for the 89, I was 25. I was sponsored bike racing, raced around the country, but I wasn't making much money doing it. I decided to get a real job, which turned out to be a uh, job at a loan originator where I, I was in a phone room and answered phone calls of, of people who were looking for loans. And that was my you know, beginning in real estate when I was 25. I really, at that point, knew absolutely nothing, but I was a quick learner and I was uh, very eager to prove myself and excel. And uh, within six months, I, I was top performer in my department and I rose to the ranks of that company and then eventually started my own mortgage company where we were making hard money loans mostly to investors who were buying REOs, which in, in, the, in the early 90s, this was 92 when I started the company, early 90s is when they had the downturn, one of the downturns in California and real estate. So I was making these loans and I thought, well, I could do this. And I started buying um, properties myself and I'd buy the most challenged properties at the biggest discounts. And that was, and then I'd be very hands-on in turning them around. And I did pretty well. I, I got up to about 500 units in California, in Southern California. And then I started uh, my last purchase in California, which is a pretty astounding purchase. It was 1998. And I bought 298 units in downtown Los Angeles for $850,000, which is, you know, 3,000 a unit. It was just, it was a ridiculous wow. purchase in downtown Los Angeles. Now, the property, people say, well, how did that happen? And I'll tell you, it was, it's a funny story. And this is one of the stories that I share in my book. The property was called the Ford Hotel. It was a single room occupancy hotel. We rented the rooms mostly by the month. We had some people that paid by the week and by the day. And so mostly long-term tenants. And uh, the property had sold uh, about six years before I bought it for four and a half million dollars. And the owner got put in jail for slum violations at the property. So he, he sold it for $4 million. And that owner also went to jail. So then it sold it to the guy that I bought it from. He ended up buying it for, I believe it was $2 million. And I may be a little foggy on the, on the exact amounts, but either they kept dropping in price each time it sold. So the guy I bought it paid $2 million cash and then he got put in jail. So now, now, now they were like marketing this property for sale. And literally the owner was in jail and he, he, uh, and so they were offering to sell it for $850,000. So I, uh, and they were even, even willing to carry back 650. So I had to come up with $200,000 down, which I did. And I bought this place. Um, and I'll tell you, before I bought it, I, I developed a relationships with some of the city inspectors. And I had generally taken on some, some much smaller buildings and turned them around with some success. So I knew uh, some of the inspectors and they told me, do not buy this building. We're going to end up adversarial. You've done a good job on these much smaller properties. Uh, this is going to be a problem for you. And of course, I did not listen. I'm always, uh, always very optimistic. And so after I purchased it, I met with the inspectors and they said, okay, you got six months uh, to get this thing. So we come in one day and there's not a single violation in the whole property. But if you can't do that, then we put the other guys in jail. We can't selectively prosecute you. So we can't not put you in jail. So uh, that was my motivation. I had six months to do this and they came by every single month. And it was like the plumbing inspector, electrical inspector, health inspector, fire inspector, maybe a couple others. And they would look around and every time they came out, they said, you are making fantastic progress. This is really good. So I was very surprised when six months later, uh, a friend of mine called me and it was New Year's Eve of that had to be 98. And a friend of mine called me and said, hey, you're in the paper. <laughs> and I go, for what? He said, it was like 30 some criminal violations filed against Redondo Beach Man, which unfortunately was me. And so they did file this action as promised on, on the six month deadline. I was mortified upon hearing those words. Uh, and the first thing I thought about was my parents because they were going to read this because it was in the Los Angeles Times. And so I lived about five, 10 minutes from my parents. I drove over there as fast as I could. I found the LA Times and I found the Metro section, which had this story. And I pulled, <laughs> I pulled the section out. And <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So they wouldn't have to read about it because I always envisioned my mom, who's, uh, who's British, who would be reading with her morning cup of tea. She'd be reading the paper. <laughs> And suddenly realized that her, her son had been accused of all these uh, criminal violations, which would have been uh, probably very challenging. So I never told him. I, I didn't tell him until it was all done, which took a while. So you know, my next call was to my attorney. And I was like, it was, again, New Year's Eve. My attorney was not answering the phone. I was stressed that day. And then it went through the weekend. New Year's Eve, I think, was a Friday. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Finally, I got a hold of him on, on Monday. And so what do I do? He called the city attorney 
And they said that um, we can't selectively prosecute. We've heard good reports that, that your client's making progress, but we had to file these charges. So, but, but here's the resolution that, that we worked out. I paid a $10,000 fine and they agreed that as long as I stayed out of trouble, I was put on probation. And as long as I didn't have additional uh, properties of violations, then uh, they would give me enough time to finish it for a reasonable amount of time to finish it as long as they saw continued progress. And now I thought when I bought this that I would have it done in six months. It ended up taking me 17 months, which is obviously a lot longer than I thought. But I did. There was a day in November 1999 that they came out there just a few days before Thanksgiving where uh, they came out and could not find a single violation. And I remember we took a photo with all the inspectors in the, in the basement and they signed off everything. And this property had been in the slum housing task force for years. And so wow. finally, I got it out of there and I sold the property uh, promptly thereafter. I made over a million dollars and I was like, wow, despite all the challenges, I, I forgot. For me, it was kind of cool to fulfilling to succeed where um, others had failed. And uh, it very much emboldened me. And, you know, I, I attributed, to, attributed it to being very, very hands-on. And I thought, hey, I could do this on much bigger properties. Um, and uh, let me go out of state. Now, this was 98. The market had started to strengthen, or 99, had started to strengthen in California. So I started buying in other, other cities. I bought, the first one I bought was one called Pickwick Plaza, which was 233 units in downtown Kansas City. Same issues. It, it had been, you know, severe problems. Uh, they were, I think it was eight murders uh, at the property the year before. And it was a nice property, two blocks from City Hall. Wow. But it was just in disarray, both the property and the, the management. And so I bought it and I, I bought it for something like 1.6 million for 233 units. You know, so again, a, uh, a nice deal. And I, um, I forget the numbers, but I, I spent yeah. maybe a million and a half to $2 million in repairs and turned the property around. And then I remember I went to Wells Fargo did a, an appraisal on it and I was able, they did an appraisal like $8 million. So now think about this. I was into it for maybe three and a half million and they do an appraisal for eight and I get a loan for $5 million. And so I basically had all my money back and I was, wow, this is like, I could keep doing this. Yeah. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. It really, I mean, it really wasn't. I was, I was, I was actually living at the property. I mean, this is the sacrifice yeah. wasn't that, I, you know, I just hired people and did it. I was living at the property. I was very, very hands-on, really devoted myself to it. And part of it, people think, oh, that's really noble that, that you moved into the property. Part of it is I'm, I'm kind of cheap, so I didn't want to pay for a hotel and then own, I had plenty of vacancies, uh, so I may as, well may as well live there. So that emboldened me, and I then took on my next adventure, which was in, in your neck of the woods in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. In, uh, it must have been 2000, and probably 2001 or two. There was a bankruptcy court auction in Easton. I, I believe there's a Hilton there. Yep. And so I was in the, they, they held the auction there. And it was for 1,100 units, uh, which just a massive building. And for me, it was just like, oh, that's like one of the largest apartment complexes in the entire country. So I got to do this. And it, they were selling it at a bankruptcy court auction. Prior owners had just miserably failed. And they had, I mean, it was a, a large company that undertook the project previously. And they spent out millions and millions of dollars. They were a big company and they were doing this. Okay, let's you know hire people and allocate this. So there was no one there like on the, appeared to be that no one was actually on the ground leading the charge and they, they, they met with them, um, not with success. So I thought I could buy this. And to give you the reputational background, the property was nicknamed Uzi Alley, Uzi, like the gun, Uzi yeah. I, because it was infested with uh, gangs, prostitutes, drugs. Um, I mean, you, I don't know if you knew, it had quite a reputation back then. And so I, you know, again, hey, I can turn this around. And now the numbers had multiplied, you know, I paid 13 and a half million bucks you know, this is something where I can make millions and millions and millions. But it wasn't the money. I, I lived very modestly. I wasn't like, hey, I want to get all this money to, you know, have a, a fancy car, fancy house. It was really more to prove it. Like, hey, I can take this and, and, and succeed with it. And so I bought it, 13 and a half million bucks. And I bought the property. It took about, I remember December 31st, uh, had to be 2002. So I bought the property, moved in again into the Uzi Alley which was made the papers because people were like, wait, this guy's moving in. He's the owner from California. What is he right. doing? But it, it helped. It was, it was constantly in the media. And what was good was we started making some good progress, both in renovating and in, in turning the property around. We cut the crime rate dramatically. And one of the key ingredients to the success, the initial success of this property was that we engaged the community in the, um, 
in the rebuilding. And this came about, this wasn't part of the initial plan, but we had a huge number of, of this is predominantly uh, minorities occupant behind the property and predominantly social uh, section eight. We had uh, 40% of the units were contracted, uh, were on a section eight contract. So 440 units on a section eight contract. We got, I remember each month we get like a wire direct deposit from HUD. It was a couple hundred grand. And then we had, additionally, we had like 70, 80 voucher tenants. And then we had some people just paying cash, but all low income, predominantly minority. And uh, one of the challenges at the uh, property was that, you know, as the weather warmed up, so I moved into December, but as like the spring came, you know, we had a lot of people hanging out on the properties, hanging out on the corners. And sometimes they were dealing uh, drugs, sometimes prostitution. We had issues like that. And we had this armed, when I took over, we had an armed security force, which was predominantly white and all, again, all armed. And they would drive around the property. And I have to tell you, it seemed to me like they were almost instigating some of the issues that we had because they were very um there was very much a division between the police and the uh and the community and shockingly we actually had a jail at the property which is oh, wow. i just oh wait i remember i went into the security office and i did a double take there were bars like a regular jail and there was a, a young african-american behind the bars in the the on-site jail which i was like wait what is what is this? And they told me that they, they make citizens arrest. Our security force would make citizens arrest of people on the property for various infractions. And then we put them in our jail and then call the police. And then the, the regular police would come up and take the people to the regular jail, which was just like, oh, that ended that day. I said, we are not, we cannot do this anymore. It felt so terrible. But that gave you, there was a, a huge, they didn't like each other, bottom line. And so I made the decision to fire the whole security force, which was actually a little bit nerve wracking to actually do it. And people were predicting bedlam, you know, things are going to completely lose control. And, you know, it's kind of like defunding the police. They talk about defunding the police. So we defunded the, the onsite uh, security force and right. um, we replaced them with a community patrol that was unarmed, all made up of residents who lived at the property. We were concerned about the property, really cared about it, knew some of the people that were causing the trouble. And we started patrolling the property. And I, I would be part of this patrol initially we come across, you know, 20 or 30 young men, predominantly African-American young men hanging out on the corner. And we'd ask them to move. And most of the time say, yeah, yeah, we'll move. But they'd move like two blocks away, ah, still on our property. And one of the most, one of the comebacks we got from them was typically, hey, give me a job, give me a job. And we were like, first, it just kind of slipped down our backs. We weren't even like thinking about it, but we heard it so often and then realized that many of these young men had, um, had criminal records. Many of them had trouble getting any type of job. They tell us that they went to Walmart, to Arby's, you know, all like the total basic entry-level jobs, and they would, could not get hired many a times because of their criminal past. So we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a program where we called it the TEACH program. And basically, we said anybody who showed up on time for two weeks would get a job. So the first time we did it, there were like five or six people that showed up, and they went through. We had speakers. Um, and we talked like we had the contractors that were doing work to the property, then come in and talk about what their, their particular skill level was. And I mean, what their particular trade was like and what kind of skills were necessary to excel on that. And at the end of the first class, the end of two weeks, and not everybody made it, but the people that did show up on time, that was the only requirement, show up on time for two weeks and then you get a job. So some of them got a job. And then I think people said, wow, they really did get jobs. So within a couple of classes, we had like 50, 60 people showing up on time every day for, for, for two weeks and then getting them jobs. And mostly they were uh, becoming apprentice, apprentices on the crews for the contractors that were already working at the property. And uh, many of them, many of those contractors are already uh, you know, engaging like labor ready and these other day labor services. So they just replaced them with, with the residents. And, and then some of them, some of these young men showed a lot of um, promise and uh, started rising in these crews. It was just an awesome to witness that given the opportunity, many people will can excel. But it, it was just that they were not being given the opportunity and many times had made mistakes in the past, but so those mistakes should not define the rest of their lives. And I think that's in many cases that still happens. So we gave them that opportunity and it wasn't 100% success, but there were so many success stories. It, it was awesome. And that started making the paper. And now, and this was like the awesome part, because none of this was planned, but it all kind of happened like a decision here, a decision there. But now the Columbus Dispatch wrote some very positive stories about some of these people who, who were now, now some of them even started their own businesses. 
uh, like landscaping or, or, or they became painting contractors and stuff like that. And now other businesses outside of Woodland Meadows were contacting them to do work for them. It was just so cool. And now these people lived at the property. So now the families, the residents of the property were financially getting stronger and stronger, better able to pay their rent, better, you know, and then, and then when they saw somebody like tagging something that they just painted, wait, wait, you know, they, they were, uh, can't do that here. And so really, um, it was an awesome experience. It was something where it lasted for a couple of years and it really like so many, especially young men, who were, um, and there were women in there too, but it was particularly young men who started feeling that there were alternatives to what, what they had done in the past. And so many people shared that the reason they dealt drugs or whatever was because they could, you know, they had to pay rent, they had to take care of the families, whatever they had to do. And they just did not have opportunities uh, to do it elsewhere. And for, you know, we may think, oh, come on. But the reality is they could not get jobs. And what was funny is Arby's, there was one story where one of the young men went to Arby's to get a job and was turned down. He became part of the TEACH program, started a landscaping company. We loaned him money, bought his equipment. He paid us back. And now he was doing landscaping for the same Arby's that wouldn't hire him as an employee. Uh, now he's doing the wow. work as a contractor. So it's really funny. You know, they, they do background checks on employees. They don't necessarily do background checks on somebody cutting the grass. So those were um, some cool stories. And so that property, the, by the end of it, this is about two years in, by all accounts, a big success. Our collections were skyrocketing our occupancy. We now had a lot of market rate tenants. We were right near the airport. So it was a very convenient location. We had an attendant. I remember the, the big day for me was we had an attendant from Southwest Airlines who moved in. That would never have happened uh, two or three years before. And now right. she was looking, hey, nice unit right near the airport. I'm running a place. And that was just validation that we had succeeded. Uh, we've been running, running on TV ads in, on, on some of the local uh, stations and, and to get tenants. It was a big, um, you know, lease up, but we, we had a lot of success. And then everything came tumbling down on, uh, on Christmas Eve, 2004, there was an ice storm that hit, uh, Ohio. In fact, it was the largest federally declared disaster in Ohio history. It impacted probably Willow Meadows was probably one of the most impacted properties in the state. And what happened is the, uh, ice storm hit power lines down across Columbus. I think more than half the city did, was without power, including all of Woodland Meadows. Now, Woodland Meadows was, um, was impacted more because we had boiler, we were using boiler heat. And so boilers would pump water through, there was a pipe running along the wall of each of the, um, each of the units and it would radiate heat, but there was hot, but it was because there was hot water running through it. And so these boilers powered the heat to all the buildings. But once the power went out, the boiler stopped working because they needed power. And so now we had no electricity, no heat. And then all the water in both the boiler heater lines and the domestic water, it all froze because the temperature outside was negative. I think it was around negative eight. So we had no water, no heat. And we had thousands of people living, no water, no heat, no electricity. And we had thousands of people living there. And the power was out for four or five days, just a, a and it was over Christmas, just a complete disaster, truly. The Red Cross opened a shelter across the street at a church, and eventually we restored the power. But, but as it kind of warmed up uh, in the subsequent week, the, um, all the water, all these pipes that had frozen, now they started bursting. And we had truly uh, just an extraordinary situation. The units were, the first four units were partially subterranean. They all flooded. We were allowing everybody to break their lease, leave the property. And all that work that we'd done for the last couple of years, which was tens of millions of dollars in, in renovations, all was, um, was kind of the vast majority of it was, was lost. And we called the insurance company because we had insurance for $50 million on this property. And we called the insurance company and they came out and they said that they called us back a couple of days later and said the claim's denied because all this damage was caused by the boilers and you don't have boiler endorsements on your insurance coverage. And we were like, oh, wait. Wow. I know I've never been in this experience and we have the sit the state came back at, by every year and certified our boilers and they had done it in October and here it was December. It wasn't that far later. They, all of our boilers have been tested and passed and, and really that the boilers on what caused the problem. The fact that the, you know, the, the, the power went out, uh, which stopped the power to the boilers is what really caused the problem. But something I learned, which I was completely unaware of before is that if you have a really big insurance claim which at the time I was thinking, hey, this is going to cost like $5 million. If you have a really big insurance claim, the, um, then the insurance companies will do everything you can, everything they can not to pay it and make you sue them. And then eventually you get, you know, you capitulate because you run out of money in suing them and, and you, have to, um, you have to take whatever they offer. So 
we went through this process. We sued the insurance company. I think within a month of the storm, it became apparent that we had no choice but to sue them. And now we were starting to realize that, hey, this is actually a lot. The damage is, is much greater, probably in the tens of millions. Probably appreciate the full number at the time. And I thought, hey, maybe, maybe $10 million, I get this all put back together. And I made a huge mistake in hindsight. What I did is I started taking loans out on my other properties. At this point, I owned about 4,000 units across the country. And I said, okay, well, let me take loans out on these other properties. And then once I eventually win against the insurance company, I can, I can uh, pay down all those loans. And that was probably my biggest mistake, business mistake probably at, at the time and potentially in my life, is to not, what I should have done was do nothing. If the insurance company wasn't going to pay, I could have let everybody move out. And I probably would have been better off if, and, and just take the time pressure off and, and roll forward with the litigation. Instead, you know, I was trying, I had this vision that I'm not going to be defeated. And all the things that, that drove me to success in the past were, surmount the obstacles, keep going, fulfill the vision, don't let anything get in your way. I, I should have, this is the time I should have said, hey, this is just too big a problem. There's a huge insurance policy that eventually is going to pay out here, at least some of it. But what I did is I, I took money from the properties. I started doing a lot of the work. I, I sunk in millions and millions of dollars. And um, by August, you know, I was partway there, but we, I ran out of money and uh, I did not have enough. And I still had not settled the insurance claim. And so I was really in a, um, in a jam and that was, uh, that was my doing. I mean, I mean, I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have spent any of that money, but I did it. And now I was troubled because now I had these loans on these other properties that I had to start paying on. And some of them were short term and coming due. And, and there was no end in sight to this insurance claim. So I, um, we had about 200 people working a day and now we were down to like 20 and making anemic progress. And the city came out and, uh, somewhere at the city, um, Somebody made a decision that, hey, we're going to knock, I mean, it felt like someone made a decision that we're going to knock this guy out because they came out and they said that, then they issued emergency evacuation orders. And basically they said, actually, I'll backtrack again. First, the mayor's office called and said, hey, we want you to come down. And so I came down to city hall and that would, uh, I think it was the chief of staff to the mayor. And basically they said, hey, what do you think about this? You have, I had low-income housing tax credits. I had this big housing contract. They said, how about this? Find another property where you can move all this stuff to. We'll support you on it. And you know, we can maybe you can move the contract, move the tax credits, and rebuild elsewhere. And I was like, no, no, I'm gonna do it. I just do what I'm doing. And uh, I didn't I didn't take them up on it. And at some point I think they made the decision that they wanted this property. It was right across the street, and it is right across the street from a, a newly built VA hospital. And um, they I saw the opportunity to get rid of this low-income housing property, which is, you know, backs into Bexley, which as you know, is one of the highest income areas in Columbus. And here was right. an opportunity to get rid of it. And, you know, they offered me something which I, I didn't kind of read between the lines and recognize that, hey, if I don't say yes, they're going to take it from me. Because that's what happened. They came out there a couple months later, issued emergency evacuation orders and said that their inspectors had uncovered uh, that a prior owner had... Um, had done, made some kind of construction shortcut, which had rendered all the buildings subject to imminent collapse. And that this, they had never known this before until all these first four units, we had to strip out, strip them down to the studs. So we, um, and they said, uh, um, so what we did is uh, we didn't believe it. I hired an engineer and the engineer did a report and said that these are not subject to imminent collapse. And so we did what was, you know, I, I just kept going on this. So I talked to my attorney and we got temporary restraining orders against the city, which, um, you know, obviously optically probably the city didn't appreciate. We, um, but we were in court. And again, now it's super high profile. Uh, the media is all out there and we did get succeed in getting temporary restraining orders against the city. Uh, so they could not execute on their three day notices to vacate. And what was, a, what was appalling at the hearing is that this, you know, the judge asked the city, what is their basis for their belief that the buildings are subject to imminent collapse? And they had absolutely nothing. And I had an engineering study that's saying they're not subject to imminent collapse. So the judge said, okay, this is, uh, they understood the city's position. Like you got to fix, you got to get this thing back to code. You have to get all these repairs done. So, um, they, we came out with a settlement agreement with a, which the city was a part of. And basically they said that I had six months to fix the buildings and that the court appointed a monitor who would meet at the property with all the contractors every week. And at the end of six months, if I'm done, then everything's fine. If I'm not done, then you know that's that's the problem. So I I um, agreed to it, and then I called my attorney and said, "Hey, whatever deal you can make with the insurance company, let's just get this over with." 
And the city, in the end, the uh, insurer settled for $32 million, which gives you an extent, which wasn't enough to cover all the damages, but was still, everyone tears 32 million. Wow, that was a huge, that was a huge amount of money because it is. But yeah. with all the bills that I'd already accrued, both paid and unpaid, and the, um, and the work that was still needed to be done, it was not enough. It was, I think the estimates ended up being um, around 45 uh, million total. So I was short significantly, but I said, okay, 32 million is enough. Let me just get this thing back in, uh, in operation and then I'll figure out you know, what to do later. And so now we had, a, we, we were back to a couple hundred people a day working at the property. The inspector or the, the overseer from the court, the court monitor was there every Monday. He was sending back uh, reports to the, um, to the court saying, ahead of schedule, making great progress, da, da, da. All accounts, great progress. Uh, but now the city, unbeknownst to us, went to HUD. And again, HUD was, we had a HUD contract, 440 units on the property and told them to uh, terminate our contract. And so HUD came out there. It was just a few weeks later and said that they drove onto the property and said, hey, this work isn't done. You have 30 days to finish it. And I went back and said, hey, you know, I would call my attorney and say, wait, we just agreed with the city and the court. We have six months and I'm we're well ahead of schedule, but I can't do 30 days. And so we went to court and HUD, and the judge ordered HUD to appear in court saying, why are they only giving me 30 days? And HUD refused to appear. So they're not bound by municipal court as a federal agency. They're not appearing. And uh, after 30 days, they came out to the property. They were there for about five minutes. And they, um, and they then said, hey, you're not finished, which I couldn't even pretend I was finished. Uh, we are terminating all the contracts. And that was kind of the final blow. That was the, the end. I could not go forward, financially go forward after that. And I ended up losing everything, um, you know, my other properties, losing with the Meadows. And I ended up $26 million in debt. I personally guaranteed, um, I, I was so confident in my success, I, I would routinely sign personal guarantees, which when all this thing, everything went bad, I ended up in, you know, significant debt. And the property was closed about six months later. The city demolished it and the city got eventually what they wanted. They ended up owning the property. Uh, and they own it today. They built a high school on a portion of it, and the rest is a, uh, a big vacant lot. Um, and uh, but so they got what they wanted, and you know I, I walked away just financially devastated and mentally a little bit like wow. I mean it was had so much success throughout my life, and and it wasn't like success like a Midas touch. It's like I worked really hard. If you work really hard, you succeed. And here I worked probably harder than ever during this period. I ended up losing everything, and it was just devastating. Um, all, all the feelings that you know go through my mind went through my mind at the time, like shame, embarrassment. Where did I go wrong? Uh, why did this happen to me? Failure. You know, people looked at me as, as a success, and now I was uh, was a failure, and and a high profile failure because it was all over the the, the news, all over the the newspapers, um, and and it really was, was humbling. Physically, I, uh, I started grinding my teeth at the time. I, I, I went for a couple of years where I ground my teeth a lot. And I still, I've had to have a few dental surgeries to get everything kind of, it's still not where it should be, but it, it was, uh, you know, that's something, you know, the physical, you can't control. I couldn't control everything that was happening in my mind. I, I learned that your body, you know, the teeth grinding is your ability. You're trying to control something and you kind of find, you know, your, your teeth grind to find, find a place, something they can control. And, right. uh, and I couldn't. So that was, uh, that was my story of wild success and wild failure. That is an amazing story. And when I read the, the Burn Zones, the book, there's a lot more detail to it. And it's incredible, the rise and fall. And then, so I guess that the question is, how do you go from $26 million in debt to starting successful businesses again? That's the, you know, everything you did, all the hard work you put into it, that that is all amazing. And, and you know, the, the failure was amazing and, and all that. But but then to pick yourself up and start new companies that not only make money, but are also socially responsible, that's the real story. So can you talk about how did you rise from that and, and succeed again? Yeah, so it didn't happen very fast. Uh, I tried to do what I was, had historically done, which is you know do um, multifamily, low-income multifamily complexes. But at this point, my credit was terrible. No one would partner with me. No one would finance me. Um, so everything... You know, before it was very easy to get loans. Now it was impossible. Um, so I couldn't do that anymore. So I did, at the time I was like, I brokered a few multifamily deals, which was, which was fine. I made a little bit of money to survive. And then I ended up, you know, in 2007, I started hearing about, you know, all the subprime mortgages, you know, the potential that millions of families were going to end up in foreclosure. 
And I thought at some point I thought, hey, these people are going through exactly what I went through. And all those feelings I just mentioned, shame, guilt, embarrassment, why did it happen to me? They're all going to be experiencing the same thing. And you know, maybe I can use my experience uh, to help them and, and start a business. It wasn't completely, uh, although the first iteration of, of AHP was a nonprofit. It was a 501c3 nonprofit. And the goal was to help families at risk of foreclosure stay in their homes. But I'll, I'll tell you, backtrack a moment. The $26 million in debt, I never paid, I, I never paid the vast majority of that. That was, um, you know, I was too proud to file bankruptcy. And um, I discovered that one of my creditors made a mistake and they were foreclosing on a property that the, the Kansas City property, they were foreclosing on the Kansas City property that uh, I had a second mortgage on there. And um, they made a, a modest mistake on the foreclosure. I noticed it and I was able to sue them and I won and they appealed it. And the court of appeals in Missouri ruled that the creditor, had, which was a large mortgage company, made a mistake and had had inadvertently extinguished the debt. That was actually the quote. So, and the debt was over 5 million bucks. So this was like, wow, this creditor made this big a mistake and I don't owe him any money. And in fact, I was able to, there were two, long story, but there were two properties that secured that debt. I was able to get one of them back at a token price. So that was, you know, helped, helped me build back a little bit. But I realized that many banks and, and other creditors make mistakes routinely. And this is like the biggest banks in the country. And if, if you're in, if you can't afford to pay them and you can find the mistake, you can use that as leverage to pay them back at a big settlement or sometimes not pay them at all. And that wasn't my intention when I took the money, but due to the circumstances, it was either file bankruptcy, or which I didn't, or find uh, ways to um, resolve these with the creditors. And I, was, I learned to use the uh, mistakes that creditors often make and use as, as leverage to resolve them at discounts. And these are mistakes that are made at origination, during the collection process, during the foreclosure process or any time uh, in them. And it's not just on mortgages, it's on student loans, it's on credit cards, it's on all, all types of debt where they make, make these errors. But I had to withstand an extraordinary volume of collection calls, lawsuits, uh, garnishments, all this kind of stuff. Uh, so I knew what many of these families were about to face. So I started the nonprofit and the goal was to use my experience to help these families. So thousands of families came to us and we'd advocate one by one with their lenders and servicers. And we did not have much success. Uh, many a times the success, the servicers and lenders were not very receptive to solutions that should have made sense, not only for the lender, but also for the, um, for the borrower. And to give you context, you know, if, if, a, if a creditor came after me, and I owed him $2 million um, and they said, Hey, you got to pay all the $2 million. You know, that's it. There was, there was absolutely no way that was going to happen because I didn't have $2 million to pay him. But if they came at me and said, Hey, you owe us $2 million, but we could settle for this. And it's some reasonable number. Or we could put you on a payment plan and you're going to sell it at a discount, something like that. Okay, maybe I can do that. And so that's what we did with the. So we were trying, you know, many of these families, especially this was in Ohio, they owed 100000 The home was only worth fifty, um, And we tried to get them settled at, at the 50 Again, did not have much success. So what we did is we became a for-profit and we started buying the mortgages. And now that same mortgage where they owe 100 the home's worth 50 we could buy that mortgage in pools for like twenty grand. And now we can go to the family and say, hey, what do you want to do? Do you want to stay? We can give you a mod. We can cut the payments, cut the principal, effectively sharing the discount with the families. So that's what we started doing. And that is what got a lot of traction. We started doing that more than a decade ago. In the last 10 years, we bought more than 10,000 mortgages, predominantly in low and moderate, low and moderate neighborhoods across the country. And, and now we're going to the families not saying, hey, we own your mortgage. Send us in your tax returns, bank statements, and all that kind of stuff in order to get a, more, a modification. We're saying, hey, we bought you know, US 100, we could settle it for 50, or we could drop your payment from 800 to 500, or, you know, whatever they want to do is what we wanted to do. And we kind of lay it out. And sometimes we gave them, they'd share on the discounts that we got, and but we would still make a good return. So that was really the business plan that we've used since then to get effect. And, and uh, we started um, this, we started doing this again, more than 10 years ago. At that point, we could only go to friends and family. You know, we did our first hedge fund in 2011, and friends, family, and people we were introduced to but then in 2013, we started hearing about crowdfunding. And with crowdfunding, we could go to, you know, we could actually, you know, share our story like I'm doing right now and invite people to invest with us. And the, from 2013 to 2016, we could do just that, but we could only accept accredited investors, which are basically, you know, the 5% of our population that is the wealthiest. But then in 2016, we transitioned to Regulation A plus offerings, which allow us to accept investors who are both accredited and non-accredited. 
and that was a really turning point. Now we were uh, we made our minimum investment one hundred dollars, and so it made it very very accessible to everybody. And to give context, in our first hedge fund, the minimum investment was two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So it went all the way down to a hundred, which made it so people would say what this is, but a hundred bucks, let me just try it. And many investors. <laughs> That's exactly would try how it. I got into it. Is it? To, yeah. to be honest, I heard <laughs> I, I heard it, and that. I thought it, it's too good to be true, and I put a hundred dollars yep. into it. And uh, s- since then, I've put significantly more because it, it, it's a great fund. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's exactly, it, it made the entry level, the entry price like so low that people, they just want, they just try it. And then they say it works, then they put in more money. We have, uh, most investors invest multiple times. And that I think from, a, the reality is a $100 investment for the cost of processing, it's not worth it. But from a marketing perspective, the average $100 investor turns over time into a $7,000 investor. So that is, um, it turned out to be a very effective uh, tool. Um, so that's what we do. So we now have done uh, two Regulation A-plus funds. We're now launching two more, which will probably be our um, our final, uh, we expect to be our final crowdfunding funds. One is called AHP Title. The other is called Pre-REO. And both of these pay out, we pay the first 7% each year to investors. So 7% annual return, $100 minimum. If investors need their money back, they can request early redemption on a best efforts basis where we have, uh, we redeem the money. Uh, we attempt to redeem the money within 30 days. If they do it in the first couple of years, they get a slightly reduced return. And so that's what we've evolved to. You know, our goal, just where we're going. You know, right now we have a number of, of HPs evolved into a number of different companies: a mortgage servicer, a mortgage originator, Pre-REO, which is a platform where we we uh, sell and finance. Um, we're a platform for institutional sellers of defaulted mortgages and to sell them to typically local investors who usually buy REOs. Now they can actually buy mortgages. And then HP Title, which is a title insurance company. And um, you know, we expect these to be our final two crowdfunding offerings. Our next step is, you know, in, in our, our goal is in 2025 to roll all these companies up and, and do a public offering on the New York Stock Exchange. So that's a long-term goal that we're trying to get to and, and working towards. Uh, I'll be 60 in 2025. So I'm hoping by my birthday, yeah. I'm not hoping, that's the goal. And every, all the leaders of the company know that. That's, that's what we're working towards. I put off a lot of stuff in my life when, uh, when Woodland Meadows happened and in the aftermath, I, uh, we, I got married uh, about 10 years ago and I, uh, we just had our, our first children uh, in the last year. So I have two twin baby boys and it does kind of open you up. Okay, maybe there's, there's more to life than just working. And, right. uh, and so that's my goal is, you know, they'll be going to kindergarten in, five, in 2025 and, and hopefully I'll be able to spend spending more time with them now. And I'm hoping to spend you know, even more time as, as they grow older and I grow older. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step. The first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. Can you talk a little bit about, well, the AHP title, that, that is that di- a different 
arrangement than the, I mean, it's different than the pre-IREO company. So can you talk about that? And also, if you do go public, does that, the investors that are putting money into these two new funds, will they also reap the benefits of of going public or how does that work? Yeah, good question. So uh, uh, HP Title is a title insurance company. So we actually like insure, you know, every time you buy or refinance a house, you get title insurance. So we'll actually be an insurance company we are buying an existing insurer and then rebranding it AHP Title and expanding it across the country is, is, is the goal. And one of the big advantages uh, is that insurance companies are eligible to become members of the Federal Home Loan Bank. And so our intention is to become a member of the Federal Home Loan Bank, which will give, give us access to very, very cheap leverage. So we can, you know, uh, they'll lever, in some cases, they'll allow us to lever defaulted mortgages if they're government insured. So think FHA, VA, USDA. Um, and we can get you know, leverage right now. It costs less than 1%. So that's our, um, the title insurance company we think is a great opportunity. The added benefit of being a member of the Federal Home Loan Bank, being eligible to be a member of the Federal Home Loan Bank is, is a, another benefit which we hope to explore and grow over time. Then again, pre-REO, in, in a nutshell, it's pre-REO.com. A local investor, you know, say you're in Columbus and you were interested in buying a defaulted mortgage in Ohio. Normal circumstances, that's very difficult to do. Now you can go into pre-REO, look at um, defaulted mortgages that are available in Ohio. You can find, you know, browse what's available. If there's one that's of interest, you can bid on it. If you end up being the winning bidder, then uh, you can buy it and we'll actually pre-REO finance it. They'll provide 75% of the money. You provide uh, the 25% of the money. And basically uh, the investors pay pre-REO a 12% return and then they get all the upside. So if you end up making a 18 or 20% return, that's great. You get all that. We just get our, our 12% return. So the money that we raise from crowdfunding is basically used, the majority of it is used to fund the, the financing of defaulted mortgages. Okay, so as a, as a passive investor investing in either one of those funds, I would be presumably earning 7%. And then is there upside? Yeah, good question. That was the other part of your question. So no, you get uh, you get your, your, um, your money back plus a, a, a return of 7%. That's it, that's a preferred return. And you know we pay that before the common shareholders. So, but that is what you get back. Uh, what, eventually, um, the goal is to pay all the investors back, and um, you know their their investment plus the the predetermined return. In these cases, seven percent. But they would not get the potential upside when we roll it up. It would be a probably logistical challenge to figure out how to allocate funds between it. So right now, we simply get that preferred return. Okay. And and when are those funds opening up for, uh, so investors can uh, can look into them? Sure. Both of them should open up in September, the next 15 to 45 days. I expect pre-REO probably go live like the first week of September. HP title will probably be uh, towards the end of September. Okay. And those are similar in that you have the minute, you said the minimum is $100 minimum and is $100. you can, you have access to, you can get that capital back if available, same as the current funds. Exactly right. Excellent. Well, listen, we, we've gone long. This is fantastic. You have such an interesting story. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, one of the last things I always ask is, is if you're a podcast guy, what, what's a what's a good podcast that you like to listen to? So, Wealth Formula. I mean, Buck Joffrey um, is one of the first is the first podcast I probably ever listened to, and it was the first, also the first podcast that I was a guest on. That was again that was years ago. It was probably like 2014 or something like that. Which seems in pre in podcasting, uh, yeah, to, in podcasting history is probably a really long time. Absolutely, it is. That, that's a great podcast. I enjoy that one as well. Yeah. And so the last question, then, if people want to get a, get in touch with you or invest in your funds, what how, how do they do that? They can go to preario.com or ahptitle.com. They both um, have their own uh, sites. They both end up kind of in the same back end, but that you can learn about each each opportunity there. And if you are interested in investing, you can invest, invest now and, and, and walk through the process. It's all done online. It's very simple. Again, minimum investment, $100, and we accept accredited and non-accredited investors. Okay. And if people want to uh, get the full details on uh, on your story, they can read your book, Burn Zones, which uh, I assume is available at Amazon and everywhere you buy books. Absolutely. Yeah. It's Amazon, Walmart, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's widely available. And uh, yeah, I encourage people to pick it up. It will tell a, a story. I think a lot of people learn from it. In life, I've learned that you learn uh, the most from your failures. You learn more from your failures than your successes. So there's a lot of failure in there. <laughs> and to learn from, uh, and hopefully it will help other people, um, you know, in, in their, in whatever their pursuits are. Yeah. Well, it's a great story. And, and I love that the, uh, the new businesses you're building, you can make money at, but they're also helping people. 
So it's a great combination. That's my favorite combination to make some money mm-hmm. and do, do good in the world. So, you know, we thank you for that. And congratulations on, on getting back on your feet. A lot of people seeing $26 million in debt, they probably would have given up. But um, you, you kept fighting and contributing. And, and I think that's fantastic. So thank you very much for being on the show. We appreciate having you. I appreciate that, Jim. Thanks. What an amazing story hearing George tell it. I've read his book and that was also fascinating, but to hear it in his own words is really, really interesting. And to see someone have that great success where you're buying these large multifamily properties and then to have it all come crashing down through some bad luck and the city kind of working against you. And then to be able to build it back up and build new businesses that not only help people make money, but also help people stay in their homes so I'm, I invest in the current fund, AHP Servicing, which has been great. It's a nice place to park money and you can have access to that money in a reasonable amount of time. So it's good for liquid funds that you're gonna use somewhere else later. And I'm excited to see these two new funds when they come out. But again, George has a great story. If you haven't read Burn Zones, I recommend it. He was a great guest and I hope to talk to him again soon. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>